The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Well, church, wonderful to see everybody. If you guys go ahead and take a seat and grab your Bibles. Thank you, Eric and Daylene, for leading us in music this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles up once again to Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. All right. How are we this morning? Can I have a hello? Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. And I'll make sure. Yeah, looks like I'm on. All right, well, f- brothers and sisters, let's, uh, before we get into God's word, Bible's open, let's go ahead and go before him in prayer once more. And Father, with our Bibles open, waiting to, to hear from you, we, we know that our hearts are open and exposed before you. This can be certainly a frightful thing, but above all, a comforting thing, God, to know that you see us perfectly and plainly. There's nothing hidden from you. And so with that right now, in this, this moment, God, we, we ask as you are looking upon the heart, not on the out, outward appearance, but on the, the matter of the heart, God, that you would speak to each and every one of us here, including myself, um, in a manner that we need to hear from you. As your word is preached, God, as, as I ask that you would work through me, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to work through me in the preaching of your word to minister, to minister at the at the core, at the, the depths of who we are in a manner that, that ultimately God draws us closer to you, fills us with your love, exalts Christ, and restores the brokenness that sin has done and that we face each and every day. So Father, even as prayed earlier by my sister Daylene, be welcomed this morning, Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it's actually been a while. Do you re- do you recall the last time I preached? Yeah, it's been a while. And the opportunity I was g- given to do so, do you remember what I preached on? Did anyone remember? It's been, <laughs> it was on the unbreakable promises of God. Do you remember that? Okay, so... What were the two points, this might be a challenge, what were the two points that sermon, of that sermon that God's promises withstood the test of? Do you remember? The first was the unbreakable promises of God withstand the test of time. Mary got it. And the second was the unbreakable promises of God withstand the test of evil. Those are the two points. The lapse of time will not thwart God's promises 
coming to fruition, nor will any measure of evil. You know, truths, we all, in a general sense, share and can be confident in God about. Today, God's unbreakable promises get more individualized in being challenged. They hit home on a personal level. Relatable, but more personal in its nature as we see it portrayed in the life of Abram. We saw early on a movement in Abram's life to go to Canaan. And then God specifically calling Abram to the land of Canaan and making a covenant with him, promising that he, God, will make Abram a great nation and will bless him and make his name great so that he will be a blessing and that in Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes this wonderful covenantal promise to Abram. Abram obediently responds to God's calling on his life and picks up his family to go to the land of Canaan and settles there. Abram finds this, this nice piece of land. You know, there's oaks there. Abram liked oak. You'll see that. There's, he finds this in the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. All right. Like, not bad. That, that's a good start. I'm in the land God told me to go. He's there. Abraham's there. I've, I've found a good spot. I've staked my claim. Built an altar here, calling on the name of the Lord, who has made this promise with me specifically. He is my God. I am walking with him. Okay, then. What next? How was this blessing, this, this life of walking with God, going to unfold? And it's here where life gets interesting, as it often does when walking with God. What's next is trusting God's promises on a personal level. For when one responds to God's call in their life and believes his promises, not only in, in a general sense, Jesus is Lord, Jesus saves, God is glorious, but, but believes God's unbreakable promises on a personal level, takes them to their heart as their own, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior. My God is supremely glorious. He is my Father and Redeemer. He is my God, and every one of his promises I take to heart as my own. It's here where life, where walking with God gets interesting. It's where trusting God's promises on a personal level take shape. We could even shorten this further. For, for if you are trusting God, then you are trusting in every one of his promises found in his word. You know, this is the big idea for today's message. Trusting God on a personal level. Abram's trust in God is showcased for us in two ways in the passage this morning. For our learning and example seen in him from chapter 12, verse 10, 
all the way through chapter 13. The first example, and therefore our first point in regards to trusting God on a personal level, is trusting God in the face of circumstantial adversity. Verses 10 through 20. Trusting God in the face of circumstantial adversity. How is Abram's trust in God on a personal level going to hold up when it's placed in the face of circumstantial adversity? You know, there's no time frame provided in the scripture here at this point, but nevertheless, what does verse 10 tell us happens? What takes place in verse 10? A famine. Right? There is a famine in the land. And for emphasis, it's mentioned twice with the added severe adjective, causing Abram to pick up, pick up camp and head down to Egypt where the Nile River still provided water for food to be grown. This was not a move based on anything but mere survival. No doubt a drought is what is taking place here in the land of Canaan. And if Abram and all the people, plural, remember, he's not by himself and not just his spouse, but all the people he acquired in Haran, if they were to survive, they needed to leave the hill country, the high hill country in the east of Bethel, where they settled and head to lower ground to a place where water was. And the closest, best water place, Egypt, where the Nile River courses through circumstantial adversity, things that are taking place that are out of your control. Not God's, but your control. This move was necessary. And God, who summons famines on the earth for his purposes, Psalm 105, 16, you know, any climate change is only by God's decree. God brings a severe famine in this part of the earth, resulting in Abram's need of survival to pick up and move, to make a change he otherwise would not do. Circumstantial adversity. Can we trust God on a personal level in the face of circumstantial adversity? And before we move forward at the example Abram provides for us, let us pause and consider other types that we, may, that we may or already have experienced in our lives, just to kind of bring it more home to us. Anyone here ever have their home catch on fire? <laughs> I have a D-heart in the back, but the other family who have experienced that are away for the weekend. But man, I remember that moment so vividly. It was, it was during a community group gathering in our place. Jason, being a volunteer to our local Parkdale Fire Department, he receives a notification on his phone about a house fire. He recognizes the address and announces in bewilderment, our house is on fire. His father, Craig, repeats the statement back to him as a question. Your house is on fire? Jason verifies the address. Is our address such and such Culbertson Road? Craig nods in agreement. Jason replies, yes, our house is on fire. I mean, that moment was surreal. I, it was it, surreal. I'll never forget it, nor were anyone else who was present there. 
the day after, now listen, the day after remodeling, the completion of the remodeling of the, the, of the apartment on Jason and Amanda's property, purpose with prayer and personal sweat to have as a suitable pay, place for his grandparents to live is now up in flames. The day after. If this circumstantial adversity does not fly in the face of our personal trust in God, I don't know what would. Unexpected death of a loved one is another one, right? As would an unexpected health diagnosis for your, yourself or for your spouse, a child, an aging parent. You know, any family member and loved one. How about injuries suffered on a job or any, from any multiple of, of ways? You know, a car accident, recreation accident, working on a project at home, you fall off the ladder. I mean, things happen. A job layoff. Not because you're not doing your job, just because there's no job to be done. Sorry, you're laid off. You know, things you don't plan for. Things you don't foresee, things you wish would not happen. But in life, they do. They do for all of us. Circumstantial adversities that fly in the face of trusting God on a personal level. Things taking place that are out of our control that cause you to make a change you otherwise would not do. Getting back to Abram now. Heading to Egypt, remember? He's having an encounter to trust God in the face of circumstantial adversity. What is going through his head at this time, I wonder? My, my family is in need, and I got a lot of people to care for. I'm going to a place where I am a stranger and there is a very powerful man there whom I am at the mercy of. Like, how is this going to go? I'm in a very vulnerable state and who or what is to stop Pharaoh from taking advantage of it? These sorts of questions had to be circulating around in his head, in his thoughts, I imagine. I mean, why, why wouldn't they? It's a moment of decision, right? Moment of decision. Step forward in faith or take matters into my own hands as best I can. Abram does the latter. He does the latter. And the leverage he identifies to exploit is found in the physical attractiveness of his wife. This is, this is something I could use. So Abram devises a plan without seeking the Lord, nor anyone else's input, right? Which should be, which should, should serve as a warning sign of his departure from walking with God by faith. No, he devises a plan on his own. Let's go ahead and read verses 11 through 16 to hear this account again. 11 through 16, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful, that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. 
Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for, this, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I'm persuaded to think that Sarai, taken into Abram, to Pharaoh's house as his wife and all that entails, was for a length of time, for we, for we read how it did indeed go well with Abram for the, by the hand of Pharaoh for the sake of Abram's wife. Abram accumulates a lot of wealth in Egypt, as six, verse 16 clearly depicts. That had to have taken a fair amount of time. Unless, however, it was all a gift to Abram from Pharaoh for his so-called sister to be his wife. You know, that's certainly possible. And therefore, her stay in Pharaoh's house may have just been one night. But does it really matter? I mean, isn't it all just a moot point? For in the end, for in the end, Abram was okay with it. He was okay with the arrangement so long as it went well with him. That is the point. That is the issue at hand. That is the outcome of acting not in faith, but rather taking matters into your own hands as best you can. Allow me to to paraphrase it another way, in a general sense, to bring some current day perspective on what took place. Here is a man recognizing his own bride's physical beauty and how any man would find her attractive, exploits her, and I mean all of her, her physical beauty, her body, right? Exploits her for the purpose of not only self-preservation, but also personal gain. I'll shorten it a bit more. Because other men will want you sexually, I'm going to use that for my benefit at your cost, for your sake, for the sake of your purity, and for the sake of your emotional and physical well-being, that it may go well with me. My concern is for me, not for you. There are some accurate, while filthy names that could be ascribed to one who does such a thing. This is more or less what Abram does with his own wife, with his bride. This was a deplorable act on behalf of Abram. It's disturbing to even consider. This this great man of faith, the Pharisees rave about, right? This ought to put some perspective ought to shine some light on John the Baptist when he says, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abram. Right? That kind of like, that fits when you consider this example that he shows us. Abram is a poor example here. Abram was not trusting God on a personal level when it was put to the test under circumstantial adversity. Now, how is this helpful to us? Well, are we any less prone to such accounts in our life? No doubt, each one of us have deplorable acts recorded in God's book of our lives. Similar to Abram, this doesn't thwart God's purposes in being fulfilled, nor does it give us allowance, and that's super key, nor does it give us allowance or license to sin as we please. We are held accountable to every idle thought, every word spoken, every deed done or not done, and sin, though it can be forgiven and washed entirely clean by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in him, it has consequences, both in this life and in the one to come. Never think it doesn't. Satan would want you to believe so, but he is a liar. And you are believing lies if you think that. Sin is to be abhorred. And if you have sin in your life, no matter what it is, it ought to grieve your spirit deeply. Psalm 38, I encourage you to read that. It is a great example of such being expressed to God. I mean, from start to finish, he's just letting it out, and it's vividly clear. He is sick about his sin. The statement is trustworthy and true of acceptance. The statement is true and worthy of acceptance. Sin ought to grieve your spirit deeply, And equally true is that God is not interrupted one iota in bringing about his good purposes and good plans in your life and in his world. God's story of redemption that he promised at the beginning when Adam and Eve first fell will continue to be seen through to the end. Abram's lack of trust And deplorable faithlessness didn't halt it, nor will anyone else's for all time. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. And this ought to be a great comfort to our souls. How should have Abraham acted? conducted himself? How should have he conducted himself, showing himself to be a man of faith, trusting in God's promises and calling on his life? He should have sought counsel from the Lord for starters, right? That should be the beginning point. And then moving forward with changes he otherwise would not do because of the famine, because of the circumstantial adversities, I believe Abram could have conducted himself in something along these lines when he goes into Egypt and meets Pharaoh. 
the ruler of the land, you know, the guy in charge. Abraham could have approached the situation this way. Greetings, Pharaoh. This is who I am. This is our situation. I'm at your mercy. It could have been as simple as that. Knowing that, like himself, Pharaoh is actually at the mercy of God because whoever Pharaoh is, or any person for that matter, whether they worship God or not, God is God. He is sovereign over them. He who directs the heart of kings like a stream of water, turning it wherever he will, whether a king or not, God is in control. Abram was in his care, same as you and same as I. No harm is going to befall Abram or us unless he, God, permits it for purposes that are good. That's Psalm, one, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's a promise. Own that one. That's a wonderful one. Memorize it. It's doable. Abram could have told Pharaoh what? The truth. Like, this is who I am. This is why we're here. I'm at your mercy. Because doing so is meekness, church. That's meekness. Accepting what comes in life. That's out of your control. Accepting what comes, trusting that God is in control. Whatever is going to be is determined by God and he won't break his promises. Tell the truth. Respectfully, Showing honor, tell the truth. No doubt we have all faced circumstantial adversities in our life and we'll have more ahead of us. How will you, how will I act in that moment of decision? Move forward in faith Trusting God on a personal level. Letting go and trusting his providential care over you and accepting whatever he permits to come while never questioning his goodness and great and precious promises that are yours in Christ Jesus. Or will you yield to the temptation to take matters into your own hands and devise a plan of your own making that is self-serving at the cost of others. By God's grace, may we act in faith and trust God on a personal level when we face circumstantial adversities, big and small, right? for they both matter. Verse 20. Abram departs Egypt. And I sense, I sense there to be a 
I sense there to be an abhorrence of his actions. For Abram himself didn't change his course in Egypt, right? It was God who stepped in and dealt with Pharaoh to make the truth known as verses 17 through 19 inform us. Abram, he was in good standing in Egypt under the circumstances prior to God intervening. The list of assets indicate that Abram's wealth increased greatly. To have camels now, just that alone during this time frame, indicated the prosperity Abram is having under Pharaoh's favor, who is doing so on account of his so-called sister that was taken into Pharaoh's home. You know, a glance ahead to verse 2 in chapter 13, where, where we are going next, we're transitioning here. Chapter 13, verse 2, references about Abram's wealth again. Now, Abram was very rich. Get that, very rich. And not just one thing, in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Very rich. So let's be careful to recognize something here. Prosperity doesn't necessarily equate to God's approval. Prosperity does not necessarily equate to God's approval. It may, but don't bank on it. The Micah 6-8 verse that Ben referenced a time back more accurately depicts what God approves of. What he approves of in, in your life. Does your life line up with doing justice? with loving kindness and with walking humbly with your God? Abrams certainly didn't at this place in time. Don't look at your bank account or your personal assets to measure your approval by God. Abram is is confronted with the reality of his actions. Do you guys see that right now? He's confronted with this. He doesn't on his own change course. It's like, boom, Pharaoh comes to him. This is what's happened. Why did you do this to me? He's confronted with the reality of his actions. And Pharaoh is the one who gives orders to men concerning Abram, get him out of here, is what he says. Send him out of Egypt. Him and his wife and all that he had. I want every bit of him out. That's God moving Abram out. Abraham didn't move. And so Abram is just struck right in the face with his own actions. And I must consider, as we transition to our next point, I must consider Abram was at a moment of reflection in his life right here. I mean, how could he not be reflecting on what has transpired Abram is at a place following an epic, and yes, I use that word sparingly, following an epic failure. Where does Abram go? He goes back to the beginning. And an Indigo's line from Princess Bride triggered in my mind on this thought. Remember Indigo when he's at his lowest low? He says, I'm waiting for you, Vicini. You told me to go back to the beginning, so I have. This is where I am, and this is where I'll stay. I will not be moved. 
He's at his low point, and that's what he does. And Abram, similarly, at his lowest of lows, is going back to the beginning. And the beginning here with Abram is the place where he first called upon the name of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 13. And he, Abram, he journeyed on from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent, now listen, where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Remember the course now. First Abram speaks, or excuse me, first God speaks to Abram while he was still in Haran about what he, God, will do through him. It's the first mentioning of the covenantal promise, of the covenant promise that he makes with Abram, signifying his calling on his life. Next is where God actually appears to Abram and affirms this promise made to him. An encounter with God takes place in the land of Canaan where Abram, he places this memory marker, right? So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And as Ben noted, you know, there's, there's progression in Abram's walk with God. First, it's, it's God speaking to Abram. And, and then next, God shows himself to him. And then, and then a bit south from that place, Abram settles in the land promised. He's in the land of Canaan, in the hill country between Bethel and Ai. And it was at this place in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, where, where we read for the first time, Abram calling on the name of the Lord. And I see that as a notable distinction in the progression. God speaks to him, reveals himself to him, but then Abram goes to this place, settles, and calls upon the name of the Lord. And it's here. It's here where Abram returns after his failure, and I believe is doing some reflection of where he is at with the Lord right now. Considering his epic failure, and in contrast, the Lord's faithfulness despite it, and how to move forward rightly. Self-reflection. It's a good and healthy practice in a Christian's life to take inventory of your heart, your, your involvement, your, your use of time. In short, and all-encompassing your walk with God. Are you walking with God? Would a trusted friend affirm that you are? Reflection on your Christian life ought to be a regular practice. Am I regularly in God's word? How's my prayer life? Have I, have I shared the gospel with anyone recently? Am I praying for opportunities to do so? Am I confessing sin in my life? Am I growing in the fruits of the Spirit? Are the, the Christian virtues listed by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, are those being added to my faith Am I seeking for them to be so, to grow in that, to be added to my faith? Am I seeking God? Self-reflection is a good and healthy practice 
in a Christian's life. And I believe Abram was doing just that here in this moment. Like still like licking the wounds, right? Of his deplorable behavior centered on self-preservation and selfish gain at the expense of his very wife. Abram, doing some self-reflection, returns to this place once again where he first called upon the name of the Lord. And verse 4 of chapter 13, what does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. That he may rightly move forward. And my God, may we, may we do likewise when we stumble and fall. May we, may we return to the beginning, return to God, call upon his name once again that we may rightly move forward. This is what Abram does. For in short time, another adversity rises against God's promises, which is our second point, and that is trusting God in the face of relational adversities, of relational adversity, focusing our attention completely on chapter 13 now, trusting God in the face of relational adversity. And I'll say, in some ways, not to lighten to any degree circumstantial adversities, I believe relational adversities can be much more challenging. Circumstantial adversities that are out of your control, I can accept this. I I mean, what can I do? It is what it is. This is happening. It's out of my hands. Whereas adversities, tensions, difficulties, a, a straining that stem between you and another person, between two parties, <laughs> you can't change people. And you yourself are sinfully, sinfully complex in your contribution to the problem. Husband and wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 18.22. A glorious truth and promise. (sighs) Not feeling the favor right now, Lord. Not feeling it. And because of me, nor is my wife in a happy place. Like, things are straining right now. It's difficult. Parent and child. Blessed is the man who has children. We just prayed about that this morning. And rightly so. Blessed is that man whose, whose quiver is full of them, as Psalm 127.5 states it. <sighs> well, Lord, the arrows in my quiver right now are soaked in my blood. Okay? Training them up in the way they should go yields a lot of bleeding on my part. The adversity that exists between us at times ferociously causes bloody wounds. I'm hurting. I'm bleeding right now, Lord. Between Christians, Psalm 
133, one through two. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Yes. It's not happening right now, Lord. It's not. In fact, there is a lot of turmoil in my soul because of this beloved Christian brother or sister. And I know I'm currently not their delight either. I'm challenged in trusting you and how this will all be worked out. Lord, I'm not feeling unity like the oil running down the beard of Aaron, but rather it's more like wax, melted wax covering a mangy horse's tail right now is what it seems like. Like, I, I trust you, I do. But how will unity be restored when such is the current state of things? Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a lot packed in that verse. In regards to outsiders, Lord, this isn't going well. They are unreasonable. They are, they're, they're thinking, Lord, you know this. It's nonsensical right now. What am I to do? Perhaps Abram, perhaps Abram will provide us with, a, with a, a, a good example this time, I hope so, right, of how rightly to move forward, trusting God in faith when facing relational adversities. Back to Abram now, who, remember, has been confronted with the reality of his actions. He returns to calling upon the Lord. And praise be to God, Abram responds completely different to this adversity. He responds to the situation with meekness. He does. With showing grace and compassion, showing favor to the other. He puts himself second, not first this time. There's a change here. He learned from that past mistake. And such takes place when one reflects upon themselves. When we take inventory of our lives at all times, but especially where failure exists. So what is the situation? And how does Abram respond? Verses 5 and 6 say it plainly with the added tension on the situation made known in verse 7. Abram and Lot and all they possess, which is a mountainful, all they possess, they're back in the land of Canaan. That already had, mind you, it's not a vacant area. It already had people populating it. We see that. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. They're there also. And it's clear that the land is not able to support them all living in one area. Abram, in verse 9, behaves in stark contrast to as what he did before. He puts his nephew Lot before himself. Paraphrasing verses 8 and 9, it's like he comes up to Lot, his nephew says, here's the situation, nephew. 
And, and these are the relational adversities happening because of it. Like our husband, they're about to kill each other right now. This is not good. So lest, lest it only escalate for the good of both our families, let's separate. We need, we need to separate. And I tell you what, I'll put aside my rights as the older between us and offer you the first choice. In short, what Abram is doing here is letting go and trusting God. Trusting that God is in control and that, and that, and that whatever comes is that which is permitted by God and a part of his purposes in fulfilling every promise of God's for him. Abram is completely, he's a completely different man here. He is behaving in faith with meekness, kindness, and humility. He's living that Micah 6, 8 verse out. He is not putting himself first. He is seeking peace and pursuing it. Psalm 34, 14. Abram is, he's being a good example for us when we face relational adversities or any circumstantial adversities as well, but we're on relational. And we can learn from his example to conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord as we move forward, working towards resolving to the measure you are able, resolving any fracture that exists in any of the relationships you have. What does Abram embody here? Gospel living. He embodies Christ-likeness. He gets five stars for Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And another five stars, a couple verses down from that chapter, verse 18 of Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's rocking that. Abram is a work in progress, and he is working with God, as we can see by his change of response when trusting God on a personal level is put to the test. May we, in like adversities, circumstantial or relational, live out the gospel as he did. Easier said than done, right? We've got to be real. Yeah. I mean, this, it seems like it's impossible at times. But the only hope to be able to do so is by the example Abram provides. Go back to the beginning. You know, go back to the Lord. Call upon his name for his help to do so. Keep your eyes fixed on him and step forward in faith according to his word, believing, believing he will supply the help in that moment. Not a second earlier or later. Saints, it's, it's how Peter walked on water. And it's how we may be able to trust God on a personal level when meeting head-on seemingly impossible adversities in life.
Before we step into our closing portion of today's sermon, let's not miss the ripe opportunity to receive a warning from God's word and some of the details provided in Lot's decision. Now, there's nothing wrong with choosing good land. First choice was given to Lot. (laughs) He's experienced drought, which leads to famine. Mindful of all those difficulties it brought, he selects, in verse 10 we read, the well-watered Jordan Valley. Watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, where he just came from. And don't miss the detail the Holy Spirit was sure to keep record of. This area was where Sodom and Gomorrah was before the Lord destroyed the cities. And also that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's seen in verse 13. You get the, you get the sense that, that Lot was much about ease, comfort, and toleration of the wicked, that he may perhaps enjoy some of the delicacies made available by them. In one word, compromise. Lot's life, as we will see more exposure of later as we proceed through Genesis, was that his life was one of compromise. We see it here. I mean, because, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with living in the Jordan Valley. But what does verse 12 tell us? Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. What's wrong with the other valleys? Or the other cities, right? Sodom, which was known, which means Lot knew of this. He wasn't ignorant, which was known to house wicked men who were great sinners against the Lord. Well, apparently Lot was willing to tolerate that for whatever allurement enticed him. The other cities, the ones located in the well-watered everywhere Jordan Valley, it's like any one of them would be fine. He wasn't content in those cities. No, he, he had to go as far as Sodom, right to the edge, which we will see later was still not enough. Right? He trades in his tent on the outside of Sodom to a house within the city of Sodom. You see, compromise. Compromise always leads to more compromise. Every time. Please learn from Lot's poor example and don't do likewise. The closing of this chapter, chapter 13, it has, a, it has a tenderness about it that I just love. After Lot separates from Abram, in verses 14 through 16, God speaks to Abram again, reaffirming his covenant promise with him, which is so tender of the Lord, isn't it? Of what's been transpiring through Abram's life. Abram now now conducting himself in a humble way, 
demonstrating trust in God and not, not acting out of, out of self-preservation, immediately we read when, when the separation is done, God reassures Abram of his promise to him. I mean, what a father. What a father. And what an example by Abram of acting in faith. And our father will do just this, won't he? This is his pattern. He will bring reassurance to our heart on the coattails of us acting in faith. We see this played out in the Gospels, do we not? I mean, Jesus routinely held off healing of ones coming to him, seeking from Jesus his compassion to heal them. Jesus routinely interacted with them in a manner to draw out their their faith. And once their faith was drawn out, he would act. In fact, oftentimes he would say it without emphasis, right? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. We see this reflected here. God speaks to Abram words of encouragement, words that show God's commendation of Abram conducting himself in a faithful manner. Abram travels a distance south in obedience to God's affirming words to him to check out the territory promised to him. Genesis 13, 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And this also puts further distance between Abram and Lot, right? Just spreads them out. Abram settles in this new area, this new place, new beginnings, you could say. And here, builds another altar to the Lord. His third one. His third one, marking as before that Abram is one who calls upon the name of the Lord. This man's faith is growing. Fueled by the second chances to trust God on a personal level. We, in like manner, can call upon the name of the Lord and grow in our faith at the countless second chances, the new beginnings we find at the foot of Jesus Christ, being renewed by the hope of the gospel to trust God on a personal level and rightly move forward, walking by faith with him every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, that imagery lingers in my mind as a father taking his son and them going for a walk, taking their hand and walking beside. And your patience in the process, your faithfulness is unparalleled and your grace has no measure. You are so kind and so good. 
And I pray, Holy Father, that if it pleased you to have portion, any portion or portions of your word have an effect, I pray that it would have its complete work in our hearts. Even now in the quietness with our eyes closed and our, our, our direction giving in prayer to you, I pray that your word is powerfully working all the good, all the purposes that you promise you will bring to completion that what you started. God, we thank you for this life. We thank you for the hope of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.